Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney on the newest podcast from Idol Thumbs. This weekend, we have a lot to say about the right way to play games. So Rob, I understand you've been playing a whole lot of a very, very special game, especially something we've discussed before on Idol Thumbs, at least. So I'm on a little mini vacation. A few days opened up in my schedule. A friend was out of town, and he has a quiet little house in the country. Uh, so I, you know, bolted out there, and a couple friends were were out there as well. And last night we all got together and played. We played a bunch of games, but one of them, and the best experience of the trip, uh, was Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Ah, oh, yes. So if you are not familiar with this game. Uh, and I, I actually, I apologize. I expect many of the people listening, <laughs> listening to this podcast probably are. But if, if by chance you were just joining us, uh, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective is, first of all, like it's, it's a board game, but it's actually barely a, a, a board game, right? It's, it's really more of a just a interactive mystery uh, where, you know, there are ten mysteries in the box, and the one we did last night was the case of the Tin Soldier. Ooh. And in the box, you have the little mystery booklet, which is done choose your own adventure style, where there's all these little like snippets of story uh, laid out corresponding to different locations uh, that you can visit. There are also like fake period newspapers in the box <laughs> that you have to like read and like you know looking at the date and then comparing them to the date the story takes place, sort of figure out if there if any events in the newspaper are connected. Uh, to the mystery you're investigating. Uh, and then you go around to these different locations and you read a fragment of a Sherlock Holmes story uh, where you're not Sherlock Holmes. You're actually, uh, you're actually Wiggins, uh, who's like the eldest boy of the Baker Street Irregulars. So this all takes place like after the classic Holmes era, I guess, and Wiggins yeah. has grown up and becoming a detective of his own. Uh, but it's all done in the style of the Conan Doyle mysteries. And actually, it's a. I think the game is translated out of like Italian or French. Uh, but it's, it's a really good, like, it's a really good uh, impression the game is doing of the original Conan Doyle stories. And the way you win is that at the end, uh, once ever, like, at any point, the players can sort of decide that they feel like they have enough information to solve the, the central mystery. And they can bow out of the investigation, and they go to the back of the book, and they fill out like a little questionnaire <laughs> asking uh, after the facts of the case. This can be, be actually a really, a really upsetting and humiliating <laughs> moment when you see like... You like you don't even know what half the questions are referring to. For instance, that oh, that's God. happened to me a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, but then you find out like what like how Holmes solved the case, and you read the solution, and more importantly, you find out how many steps Holmes solved the case in, <laughs> and uh, you sort of compare. So every extra step you took after Holmes, uh, you lose points, but you can also so solve these sort of secondary mysteries and gain extra points. Uh, so it's just a fun little, like, how good a detective are you, uh, you know, game. And so I played this with a bunch of different groups. And the interesting thing is, when I've played it with people who are, I would consider, like, slightly more hardcore gamers, yeah. uh, just as a group, after one or one mystery or so, everyone in that group began trying to, like... <laughs> 
Aaron began trying to figure out the meta of Sherlock Holmes consulting detective. Like they played like one or two mysteries and then they were like, no. So in all these other, in, in every subsequent mystery, we must apply the, our understanding now of the game's logic and make these intuitive leaps uh, to try to solve the case as quickly as possible and match Holmes' uh, perfect record. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> we can talk about the pros and cons of that approach in a second, but it, so that was the way, that's how many of the groups I've been a part of have, have approached that game. Last night, it was a smaller group. Uh, it was just me and a couple friends, and we kind of went into it with the attitude that, we just kind of want to solve the mystery for ourselves, and we weren't that concerned about the points. We mm. just wanted to figure out what was going on, and so we had no problem like visiting extra locations and taking extra steps to sort of satisfy ourselves that we had a firm grasp on the case. And it was a a lot more a lot more fun and rewarding, <laughs> uh, to be honest. Yeah, and, and B, uh, it was the first time I've ever played this game where like. I basically felt like I had nailed every single aspect of the case. And that felt great. And having that, those moments of epiphany that this game is sort of designed to create really required completely setting aside this whole like attitude that, oh, this is a game I have to master. I have to figure out how it works and exploit it. And completely getting away from that made for a better game. And it occurs to me, that's actually not an uncommon experience for me in games. Uh, yeah. I, like a lot of games, I think I've heard like, you know, I, I, I remember on, on, on the giant beast cast, Austin Walker said at one point uh, in the context of fallout four, that there is no wrong way to play a game. I'm not so sure. I think there are <laughs> ways you can play games that kind of can ruin or reduce the experience for yourself. Yes. I, I would agree with that as well. I, I like I wouldn't say this is one of those uh, spirit of the law versus letter of the law kind of things where I would say, yes, if 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 you want to play something quote unquote wrong, that is your right to do it. But it it is there are much better and much worse ways of playing games for sure. And I, you know, listening to you talk about this, I've actually never played this game, but I've had it, you know, described me in such detail that I almost feel that I have and I have such a just deep desire to play it again with a group like what you're you're describing like play it with people who are not competitive gamers who are trying to game the system and instead people who are like appreciating this fiction and actually taking on the role of detective as opposed to the role of gamer playing detective basically which sounds yeah like so much more fun I was just immediately thinking of um, you know, like escape the room puzzle sort of um, situations that I've played with groups of, you know, I played one of those with uh, sort of my colleagues at Polygon once, and it was a great experience and a lot of fun. But I played another of those, uh, you know, room game situations with a more sort of mixed group, actually, uh, which certainly included a lot of sort of hardcore gamers and some, you know, giant puzzle nerds. But it, it felt like more of a fun atmosphere to do it with like a group of people who had very, very mixed skill sets and, and different perspectives. And it was kind of more fun to see how different people approached different aspects of a puzzle. So I totally see where you're coming from in this. Um, there are also a lot of, you know, sort of smaller ways in which there are sort of 
right ways to play a game, right? I mean, people argue a lot about sort of the optimal control methods of playing things, and I, I will never really weigh in on that argument because I, I just don't care. I, I only care about what's most comfortable uh, for me to play, but I will always kind of be a stickler about playing horror games, you know, with the lights out or or sort of at least in, in sort of a receptive uh, mindset to, to sort of play something spooky. Like I want it to be dark. I want it to be weird lighting or low lighting. I want it to be, you know, headphones or, or with the volume turned up or, or whatever it has to be. Like I, I'm, I'm big on that. I'm big on sort of getting the atmosphere right when you're playing certain types of games. Well, I also think, okay, so I also think this is a key to understanding why you enjoyed one of your favorite games a lot more than a lot of other people did, <laughs> yes. uh, which is Alien Isolation. Yes. Because I think, you know, if you go into Alien Isolation expecting it to even behave like a typical... um like system shock style game, right? Like, yeah, it, it's going to be really frustrating because it's actually, it's actually not just like in some ways it's missing some of those notes. Uh, in, in some ways it's it's really kind of trying to trying to do something else. But this is a game that definitely doesn't want. It never, I don't think that game ever really wants you to feel good at right, playing yeah. Alien Isolation, uh, <laughs> yes. which is, is kind of frustrating because it also means that, like, as you start trying to apply lessons of, uh, you know, standard stealth games and such, uh, you, you the, the game will still, like, the alien will figure out where you are just because you, you lingered too long. Uh, it, it will sort of wise up to all your tricks. The, the game is continually sort of um, finding new ways for you to fail. And, and, I, and admittedly, I do find that inordinately frustrating uh, in, in some ways. But I also think, like, if you go into it with this attitude that it is, it is, it is meant to be uh, just this, this incredibly slow uh, experiential suspense game, uh, then it's it's a slightly different thing than approaching it as a series of, uh, you know, a, a, approaching it as like a series of missions. Yes. Yeah. Approaching it as if it were an actual <laughs> simulator, you know, Ellen Ripley simulator, basically. This is what it would feel like to basically be her, you know, her daughter, obviously, in the context of this yeah. game. But to basically be, you know, the kind of person who is, you know, the engineer, somebody who has a clue in a horrible, horrible situation where everything is going wrong and this horrifying creature is stalking you and really, really does feel as if it's stalking you wherever you go, it's never going to be far away. You, you never win. Um, that situation was a lot of fun for me to play. And I totally understand how a lot of people would just find it annoying and frustrating and unpleasant. But yeah, you, it's, I, I do think a lot of sort of my enjoyment of games comes from being in sort of a really receptive mindset to to be in that world because I that's why I play games. I like to be in another world. I like to be in another person's shoes. I like to be in another sort of situation. That's so much of why I play. So getting into sort of the role playing aspects of games that you know that, that you know on their face don't necessarily have role playing elements. At least they're not advertised that way. That's what does it for me, and I think that's the right way to play a lot of these kinds of games. Right, but. And and that's the thing. Like, there's uh, okay. So I feel like I'm 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 probably conflating a, a couple things here, uh, and I want to be careful about it. So, sure. On the one hand, I think there is a degree of buy-in 
that you can bring to a different game uh, that lets you, like, you sort of, you are simpatico with what this game is, is trying to do, and you are digging it and is working for you, and you are then going to be more okay with with various choices the developers might have made uh, <laughs> sure. to make sure that you always sort of stay in that zone. You you continue having that sort of experience, even if it begins to depart from what it might become <laughs> like best practices in terms of level design. Uh, and, and like, uh, you know, if you're a first person game, like control and combat design. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, one aspect of this that that element of that element of buy-in uh that you can bring but then i think there's also this element of um playing a game it's it's related but i think it's also a different thing to play a game uh the way that someone wanted you to, to play and this is so like you know for instance i i tend to i get a little antsy uh in in open world games uh where i start to have the feeling that this game will let me depart from a path that somebody actually really wants me to stay on right like oh if i if i so the 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 fallout games uh both old and new are really good examples of this because it is really easy to just wander off somewhere encounter something first that you were supposed to encounter third (laughs) and be like, I guess I'll go give this a shot. And maybe you, maybe it's too difficult. Maybe you hack your way through it, but then you've actually sort of jumped ahead in the story and like, sort of like no longer do you have this, this nice like introduction to the game. You've kind of screwed up the order and things don't, entirely makes sense now and character relationships were clearly meant to come together in one way but because you did them out of order uh they don't feel quite as organic and you can sort of see the um you can you can sort of see the joints right in, yeah. in where these yeah. in where these like modules of story uh were sort of slammed together and that is something i i, I tend to uh that's something i tend to get a little antsy about because i i really do I, I suspect a lot of times a lot of games do have not necessarily a right way to play it, but a best way to enjoy it. Yes. And yes. if you if you don't if you don't sort of grok that, or if the game kind of obscures that, it's really easy to start approaching it from a different mindset, right? Like you know, you go into min maxer mode where you're just trying <laughs> to exploit the system, and then you kind of end up sabotaging the experience that the developer wanted you to have and the experience that you kind of wanted the entire time. And you turn it into something else, something that feels a little clunkier, a, a little like more nonsensical. Yeah, I, I, that really kind of speaks to me as well. I, I kind of get the same feeling in a lot of open world games. And I attribute a lot of it to sort of fear of missing out and being paralyzed by this fear of missing out, uh, which is sort of ridiculous in most open world games. Because, you know, unlike something like a deadly premonition, uh, which is a lovely game and very interesting game and things you will actually miss out on certain things. If you make the choice to go follow someone, you know, they might be dead the next day or, or whatever. Uh, in most open world games, you kind of can do everything. Um, you know, you're able to do everything, even if you don't have the time to do everything. So it's this weird tension where it's like, Oh God, I've got to make sure I, I do every dramatic thing, every, every side quest, every piece of content. I need to make sure I get the most out of this doing that min max thing, um, which is, 
you know, there, there's sort of no need for it. And I, and I want to be better about this sort of going forward and, and feeling like, hey, you know, you had the experience you had. It's okay. A little bit more of a Buddhist <laughs> Zen, you know, sort of feeling about going about these games, especially bigger games where, you know, they're, they're designed so that there's always something to do. Whether or not it's an interesting thing to do is, is sort of up for debate. But yeah, it's. Well, I, I think it also really depends though on whether or not the, the, developers really committed to the way their game is structured, right? Because yeah. there are definitely times where things can happen out of order and clearly it wasn't meant to work this way. Yeah. But the systems let you do that. Like it was it was a totally an option. You 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 went through door C and you sort of jumped ahead and you you played a really difficult part of the game and now it, it doesn't it doesn't sort of hang together the way it was meant to be. And at that point, the game starts to feel a little bit like um I don't know if you ever played much uh, tabletop like RPGs and such. No, sadly, I would like to get into them, but I'm uh, not. <laughs> it's they're they're very uneven experiences, and a lot depends on 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 the DM, and that's and that's sort of the that's the that's the thing here is like sometimes when games let you do things, but kind of aren't happy about them. It's yeah. sort of like the experience of when, like a game, ma- a, a game master, the person running the game in a tabletop RPG, clearly brings to a session. They have their story. Here's what the party's supposed to go through, and you're supposed to do you're supposed to do it in the order they conceived of it. And the moment you sort of break from the script that the the, the GM sort of had in mind, like sometimes you'll see it happen where like the GM is sort of like, uh, I guess you can do it that <laughs> way. I don't know, guys. It's gonna yeah. be pretty hard. And it's clearly like at that point. You know, the game lets you do something, but you can sort of tell the person who's telling the story isn't really happy that you, like, took advantage of what the game was letting you do. And I think that can be a problem in a lot of, a lot of open world games where you can just stumble into things that, like, you clearly weren't ready for or you weren't meant to see, but they're not actually impossible. Uh, it just sort of reveals things before you were ready, right? It, it's yeah. like, it's like you opened a book and something, an accident happened in the binding process and chapter five uh, came before chapter two and you just read it straight through. Uh, That's kind of how it can feel. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. It feels a little bit like, you know, when, when somebody finds a weird little glitch as well and something as well designed as bloodborne or a a souls game, skipping an area and then just being, you know, part of a bloodbath. Yeah. Yeah. Those, Although certainly those games are, are designed differently than, than anything actually open world. And that all makes sense as well. And actually sort of speaking of those games, um, I've found, and this, this might be a little bit funny, but I've found that the right way to play a lot of things for me is to stream them, actually. It, to kind of have an audience and have people interacting with me, either helping me through something or just kind of being good company, if that makes sense. Uh, Actually, it feels like the right way to play things for me. So I got through portions of Alien Isolation, again, a game I, I loved to death, actually sort of feeling like somebody was, you know, sitting there holding my hand. And that was sort of, the, you know, the audience of, of people, not not a million people by any means, but, you know, sort of folks I, that had been through this journey with me, you know, towards the end of that game. Things get incredibly frustrating, and there are elements that even I, as a as a lover of this game, thought were total bullshit. And having people there that were sympathetic and who had kind of gone through this journey with me, 
helped me through it in, in a very weird and kind of funny way. There was even someone sort of as a defense mechanism because I was so scared of the alien. I just started naming it Frankie and sort of imagining it with a hat or just something ridiculous, like, you know, a towel. It had just come out of the shower or some, some goofy thing. And, you know, one of the, the folks in chat actually like made a throwaway username that was like Frankie the Xenomorph yeah. and kept, you know, making goofy jokes and things like that. And I know how cheesy this sounds, but that actually made playing this game a much more pleasant experience and a more fun experience to kind of make this, you know, community-based alien experience. It, it was it was something special and it was something fun and it really kind of, uh, it stuck with me as one of my favorite memories in gaming in that entire year. That's awesome. a, That's an interesting, that's an interesting way of getting around some of the inherent frustration like yeah. i'm not sure that's the way the game was meant to be played no, probably but it not. might have been the only way to really enjoy some of the less savory aspects of of that game uh, what's interesting is if you read um did you read tom chick's review of layers of fear i actually have not but i will need to so uh our friend tom who joined us last week yes it did not like layers of fear <laughs> uh but he made the remark and i don't know how justified this is but he made the remark that uh the entire thing felt like it was designed for let's players on on youtube sure. uh, that it wasn't really that scary but it had lots of like jump scare beats uh and he started to get the feeling that it was meant to, for something it, like the way to play this game the, the the way it was meant to be consumed actually was as a piece of streamed or uh like youtube media yeah. And it's a game where it doesn't really exist by itself. It's supposed to exist with some person in the lower corner of the game <laughs> uh, sort of comically overreacting uh, to, to the game. And Tom's takeaway was, you know, this game can go to hell. Um <laughs> Which I, I haven't played the game. I, I can't comment on it. I will say I've seen a lot of positive comments coming for the, from the game uh, from YouTubers. Uh, yeah. But it was an interesting. It's an interesting uh, new phenomenon we're starting to see that there are more of these games that are sort of being designed with this new experience in mind, where the game is the the, the game that you the, the application is only like part of the imagined experience, and now it's supposed to it's, it's supposed to fit into this sort of new landscape where games are semi-spectator uh, entertainment a as well. Oh, yeah. And I don't think Tom is at all off base with, with feeling that this was made for streaming. I mean, it's completely... The entire phenomenon of streaming has kind of revitalized the indie horror genre, like, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, we weren't seeing a ton of indie horror games until the rise of, of the PewDiePies and the Markipliers and, and whoever else. I'm probably not, you know, showing how not cool I am with the teens by not knowing. They uh, don't listen. Many. So it's all, it, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. But, but, uh, you know, PT was, was specifically designed for that application. You couldn't figure out sort of the final puzzle basically whatsoever without it being kind of a crowd, you know, a crowd sourced, I suppose, kind of solution. You know, the, the bits and pieces and the clues were all in different languages and all sorts of things. And, and specifically one of the sort of clues to the, the name that you have to say or whatever into the microphone uh, was in Swedish and, you know, 
Kojima and company sort of knew PewDiePie would probably be playing this. He was famous for playing these horror games. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that was actually a very specific design decision. So I think there's something to that. Even though Alien Isolation probably was not designed necessarily with streamers in mind, it kind of fit perfectly into that, uh, you know, into that for me, at least. And probably for some other people, I'm, I'm sure, it was a fairly popular game and, and streaming is, is big with the kids these days. So. Well, I, I think where, where I tend to feel a little more ambivalent about it. Um, God, if there's some word cloud, uh, for, based on things I say across all podcasts, <laughs> I think ambivalent would probably just be like, you know, in like 80 point font. Uh, but yeah, I think what I, I tend to be a little ambivalent about with the, with the rise of streaming is that I kind of feel like, um, it's not that it rewards low quality, but I think it over-prioritizes the ridiculous. Oh, sure. Uh, that <laughs> a lot of streaming games, like I think one, like I think one reason that like that everything is a freaking uh, like survival game or has some survival element uh, that that you see sort of appearing in early access uh, is partly because a lot of those things in the early stages are kind of janky and broken, yeah. uh, but they tend to be broken in ways that are really comical and stupid. And that becomes entertainment value to this sort of secondary media market uh, for games. And I think so, like that's where I, where I tend to, uh, where I, where I tend to get a little, uh, a little dubious sure. of, of the benefits of streaming is that I think it does sort of, I think it does sort of, uh, encourage a, a certain type, a, a few a few types of games that I don't think are necessarily good or interesting games, yeah. but they are sort of wacky. They they, they are they are good. They, they are good. Um, they are good stages for streamers and let's players to show off uh, their skills, right? Yes. And so I, that's that's where I that's where I tend to uh, part ways with the. Uh, that, that, that's, that's where I tend to get a little suspicious of the value, uh, of, of all this for, for games a, as a medium. But so the, the, th- the other thing I wanted to ask about though, yeah, is with, with Sherlock Holmes consulting detective, uh, a big part of enjoying this game last night was the fact that we all sort of went, we all, we all sort of had a moment, probably like two or three drinks in <laughs> where we just decided like we were setting ego aside. We weren't trying to like be like the like nobody was trying to really out detective the other, uh, though I did win. <laughs> uh, I, I won because I totally I won by ten points because I totally solved a completely pointless subplot uh, that nobody else noticed. Uh, so it was it was kind of cheesy, but I, I I did win and be the best uh, Sherlock Holmes I could Excellent. be. But so we all went into it. We're like we don't care if we're actually good at this game. We don't care if the game tells us we're good. We're just going to have the experience we want to have. And we're going to play around with it. And I kind of wonder if a lot of games, the right way to play them, or at least the right way to enjoy them. Maybe that's the thing, right? It's not. Yeah. There's there's no wrong way to play, but there are ways that you can play that will make something more enjoyable or less enjoyable. Yes. yes. Uh, and I think in a lot of games. Trying to be good at a game, trying to master the game, trying to break the game, do it, like any of that, is often really, really counter to actually enjoying the game you're playing. Yes, yes, that sounds absolutely right to me. Um, 
Wow. Yeah, that feels like a very profound statement. I'm kind of thinking about it and I'm like, yes, uh, the, the times I've actually tried to, you know, really become a skilled master of, of Donkey Kong. <laughs> I've, I've just enjoyed it more whenever I just sort of wanted to play and get through it and maybe find some secrets. That sounds, that sounds exactly right, Rob. I think we should all be, you know, the uncarved blocks of, of video game consumption. We should, we should take more of a Taoist uh, feeling on these oh. things. <laughs> I, I mean, I, like, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I go that far, but it's just, I feel like a lot of, a lot of the ways that you can judge mastery in a game really, like, cut against any kind of narrative experience, right? Yes. Uh, and, and I think that is, is maybe the key difference. Like, I tend to, like, fall in love with stories and worlds, more worlds, really, yeah. in games than stories, but they're both important. Uh, and so I tend to like, for instance, like, you know, I read, a, I, I read a lot of people who say like, Oh God, how can people like the Witcher three? Like the combat is garbage. It's not that, it's not that good. It's a really, it's a really boring system. And like, I, you know, I sort of like read that stuff and then I like sort of blink sleepily. Like I'm coming into the sun after a long time <laughs> in the darkness or something. I'm like, what? Like, was there combat that was like, well, right. I don't know. Cause it's just, it, it wasn't something I really weighed too much. I didn't care about like being good at Witcher combat. I just kind of wanted to go around and, and do my Witcher thing. Um, but like that's, that's, that's the thing I, I, I tend to, uh, you know, I, I tend to feel a lot is that, um, a lot of your more rewarding, uh, like narrative or exploration games, being good at them is kind of beside the point, and actually, in some cases, I think might actually be sort of sabotaging uh, yeah. the experience. And that is that's an odd thing, right? Because like so much of, of of games is like, or at least the classic definitions of games are about like developing skills, developing mastery of systems, and particularly in the strategy sphere. Uh, but I'm not sure that really works for a lot of the games you see now. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that. And I think some of that speaks to something Tom brought up last week, which is games that are rides, basically, or sort of better suited to be rides and games that are more sort of skill-based. Um, there's there's just a divide there. And, and I understand why this sort of skill-based games would appeal to a lot of people. I, I certainly am much more interested, like you, Rob, in worlds and, and characters and sort of being in those worlds. That's more interesting to me. And maybe a lot of this sort of just comes down to the psychology of individual players. You know, some people, I, I you know, for example, I don't really play fighting games, but I enjoy boxing and I, I enjoy the, the things about fighting other human beings that are interesting. And so I can I can sort of make the leap of, I bet it's really, really cool to be so good at you know street fighter 5 or, or whatever else it is that you can play those mind games and you can actually sort of read an opponent and and sort of do the things that are are fun to do in actual fighting in a fighting game and maybe that just sort of speaks to hey some people are just competitive in this way and what's fun for them might be slightly yeah. different from what's fun for me and i'm i'm cool with that i'm cool with you know players play for Whatever there, you know, I'm sure there's some theory on this, and I've read a, a few books about it, but I don't remember any of the terms. So pardon me for not being academic. But no, my, my brain, my brain is just like a a dusty closet filled yeah. with like snatches of old like Raph Coster like article. Like yes. I could say so. I don't even know if that's current anymore. I'll probably sound dumb if I say it. So whatever. 
flow mastery right i'm going home (laughs) yeah yeah exactly i'm like oh yeah there's definitely some words for this but i don't remember them i can sort of see them on the page but i can't actually remember what they mean it's ridiculous we are are on the cutting edge of criticism we're great yeah (laughs) yeah that's basically what's happening rob but yeah i think that feels right to me you know uh play from the heart do do what feels right and don't don't get caught up in competitiveness if you're not a competitive person. At least in games. I'm a very competitive person, but I am not in the realm of video well, games. Well, I, like, I, I think we are competitive. We're just trying to like get the most narratively rich and rewarding experience yes, we exactly. possibly can. Like, oh, you you beat the game in, in, in eight hours and I took twelve. Yeah, but think of all the pretty things I stared at and like <laughs> thought about while I played. Exactly. I heard all the audio logs. That makes me better. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, well, I think that's a really good place to stop and move on to our weekend correspondence. So our first letter here comes from, and I'm going to check out their name, Daniel. Great name, Daniel. Okay, so first letter. Dear Danielle and Rob. Your discussion of environmental storytelling in post-apocalyptic settings, specifically about the Division's New York, which was left draped in the ephemera of an abandoned Christmas, reminded me of an experience of my own. When I was 10, my movie, uh, excuse me, when I was 10, my family moved to Cyprus. My stepfather was a news producer and we moved there for his job covering Africa and the Middle East. As you know, Cyprus has been split in two since the 1974 Turkish invasion. Relations between the two sides have improved a little since, uh, but the scars are still pretty fresh. When I lived there, ethnic Greeks were not permitted to enter the Turkish northern half, but foreigners were. The green line that divides the two sides runs right through the capital in Nicosia, which uh, where just a hundred yards of no man's land separates the north from the south. But in the countryside, this DMZ, administered by the UN, expands to up to four miles, and in some places has swallowed up whole towns. One night, my family and I visited one such town. When the invasion came two decades before, the inhabitants had literally dropped what they were doing and fled, and passing through, we were presented with one of the eeriest things I have ever seen. In shop windows, mannequins stood clothed in gaudy 70s dresses and hats. At gas stations, cars stood trailing hoses as though abandoned mid-pump. In the school, the classrooms remained exactly as they had been left. Chalk on the blackboard, books on desks, children's murals and drawings on the walls. Everywhere lay clues. Buildings abandoned in haste and disorder, others locked and tidy as though they expected to return soon. All of it untouched since, an entire town encased in amber. People entering Chernobyl or Fukushima must have experienced a similar Mary Celeste effect. Your mind scrambles to try to piece together what might have happened, and it's no accident that these tableaus, as you call them, are used in video games like Bioshock or The Last of Us for storytelling and Return of the Obra Dinn as an explicit uh, gameplay component. I love that game devs can evoke these places so effectively. That empty, forgotten town I saw as a child haunts me to this day but I find it unexpectedly reassuring that when I try to explain how it felt to stand in that ghostly place filled with questions, I can point to these games and say it was something like that. Apologies for the long email. Thanks for reading. At a weekend's fast coming favorite game podcast. Sorry, thumbs. Oh, thanks. Yeah, screw those hopes. guys. <laughs> I had high hopes for it and you continue to exceed them. 
Daniel. Wow. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, that uh that that was a long email, but it was so good and such an interesting story uh that I had no idea that there was this DMZ in Cyprus uh yeah. that that was uh the this this ghostly no man's land. Uh I thought that was just that was just absolutely fascinating and I I feel like Daniel sort of pointed to something that that maybe I had overlooked uh, when we were talking about these sort of post-apocalyptic games, which is that these abandoned places are, they're not like traditional disaster zones, right? Like everything is, is still there. It's not like, you know, it, it's not like, you know, a hurricane like leveled a city or something and like everything, everything's destroyed. Everyone just had to leave. Everyone had to leave immediately. And so unlike a lot of other disasters or things that can happen, you see what like, you, you, you can sort of understand or imagine the lives people led because they stopped mid moment and you see what, was going on on just a typical day that turned out to be the last day. Yeah. And I think that is what is so compelling about that. Not just because these are mysterious environments, but I think it's very hard to encounter these and not also reflect about what it would have been like to be one of those people who had to drop everything and flee. Uh, and also what your own life would look like if you just had to leave it behind, uh, you know, at, at short notice. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of amazing and cool that our brains work in such a way that, you know, when game designers uh, kind of do this, when they kind of create these tableaus, that they're that they're doing it right. That this is exactly sort of how, how that felt to a person who's actually sort of been in one of these places. I think it's really kind of cool and interesting that, like, this is how all of our brains work. We're all trying to, you know, sort of always piece things together when things don't seem, you know, quite right. Uh, that's just sort of a cool, interesting little uh, bit of psychology, I guess, that I found really, really fascinating about that letter. So our next email comes from Hunter. Uh, it's to do with a witness, and, and Hunter included a preface here saying he's not a super witness apologist, but uh, <laughs> I think this is a very important point and, uh, and a great one to bring up in the context of this game. Danielle and Rob. Regarding some of the discussion from the most recent episode, Mad Skills, I wanted to chime in a bit about useful skills from a, from a game, particularly in regards to The Witness. I agree with Tom Chick's assertion that one of The Witness's primary goals is to teach you how to play The Witness, <laughs> so that you can continue to play The Witness. But I firmly believe that this is not a case of time wasted gaining an impractical skill set, at least not universally. With the with the witness, you're not learning much in the way of directly transferable skills, but you are learning to learn. And I think that has deep inherent value for a lot of people. To progress in the witness is to learn. It is to learn for the sake of learning with a little else. True, you're not getting much directly from it, but for those of us who have fallen into habits of complacency, comfort, and challenge avoidance, being reminded of our ability to learn, to grow, and to adapt to unfamiliar situations in and of itself is inherently valuable. Hunter. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I actually do appreciate what Hunter is saying here. And I, I got a little bit of pushback um, after last week's episode, you know, sort of wanting to feel as if I had, you know, not wasted uh, my life, uh, portions, large portions of my life playing video games. Um, <laughs> and that it is valuable to to learn and to sort of take on challenges. And I think, 
even though I, I hate it on some level, I, I really <laughs> clearly love The Witness because I can't stop playing it and stop spending time at three in the morning playing it. And there is something to that. There is something kind of wonderful about challenging yourself in this way, in, in a way that, you know, most games really do sort of shy away from. No game wants to make you feel stupid. And The Witness uh, does that really, really well. It makes you feel like you like you could use a swift kick in behind, intellectually speaking. Um so I, I do appreciate that. I do appreciate it. I, I'm still sort of of the mindset where I, I prefer to be learning things that are applicable to other things in my life. And maybe that's also just because I'm such a multitasker. I, I like having, you know, multiple jobs and doing things that are very different from each other. And so I, I get excited and I love it when, well, you know, I learn something in my EMT class that I can apply to other avenues of life and, and vice versa and, and all sorts also, of stuff. So let's yeah. not short sell you. I think your interest is in finding things that will be useful to other people or the world at yes. large. Like yes. <laughs> you are, so, you are one of the few people I know who like, you know, did, you know, was an educator and a, a pretty hard worker at the ACLU simultaneously in addition to other things. Uh, so, I mean, like, I, I think for you, I think you, you, you justify this entirely. Sure. Uh, if you're going to spend your precious time learning something, it better be something that will actually benefit someone else um, as opposed to. So, I mean, I, 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 yeah. I sort of get the sense that if you, you know, you want to learn skills that will be of use to people. And I, I certainly just I'm, I'm very selfish. I'm like, yeah, that skills cool. And. I don't have many of those, so I will hoard them like smog. Yeah, uh, but you know, I, I think and that's an important point, and I I need to play the witness because I, I eventually need to have an opinion on this. Yeah, uh, but I I will say I I think it is tremendously beneficial to remind people that they have that capacity to learn and to stretch outside their comfort zone. And I've been doing a bit of that this year. I, I mentioned last week I was I was reading. Um, Flash Boys, which is the yes. story about the finance markets, and that sort of led to a, a a broader like I'm now learning a bunch of things about financial markets that you know I'd taken a lot for granted. So now I'm like learning all this stuff that I had no real interest in before, but now I'm curious about it. Yeah, and figuring out how a lot of these things work is really complicated and difficult, and and sort of you know it seems like it should be boring, but the fact that it's something new. Uh, is actually making it pretty riveting. Uh, I guess my, I, I guess what interests me here is that people will stretch themselves for the witness because I guess you know it's a video game and it's 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 really challenging and has this good reputation. But why won't we do it with any of the million? other things that we could learn real and problems, that we, and that we so want speak, yeah. or that we want to learn <laughs> yeah i mean everybody has that bucket list of like things that eventually you're going to you know i'm gonna i'm gonna read like i've I, i've never read any like serious russian literature i'm gonna at some point learn that part of the western canon so i can talk about it yeah. you know stuff like that but but no like that stuff gets put <laughs> off and then yeah. the witness pops up, and it, suddenly people are are encouraged and rushing eager, eagerly toward that frustrating brain bending experience. <laughs> I just find that interesting because uh, gamer psychology—it's it, it, kind of infuriating, right? It like is. <laughs> the hours I've so spent is. on this stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I think so much of it is that you know it, it's still a game. It's still sort of packaged in pretty colors. With you know, you do still feel rewarded on some level when you figure things out. Now, this is so much more, you know, 
uh, <laughs> zen level than than any game that's that's sort of rewarding you with cutscenes or or whatever else. It, it is much more difficult, but it is. You know, this isn't figuring out, um, like you're saying, uh, macroeconomics. This isn't figuring out, like, you know, real world problems where there are no solutions or there are the solutions are so difficult that they, they require, uh, you know, just tremendous mental strength just to, just to conceive of them. So it, it is still a game. So it is still, you know, uh, it's still safe, basically. It's still completely safe to, to sort of engage in it. Whereas it's it's not always safe to to think about you know for example racism in America you know these massive major sort of social problems that are they 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 won't be solved by even the most tooth gnashing you know mm-hmm. head against the wall puzzle basically so I think there that's part of it uh, certainly gamers like to feel challenged but safe I think in a lot of ways and that speaks directly to that. Which again is not to say don't play the witness because of course I'm clearly addicted and and unable to uh, detach my brain from its tendrils. <laughs> Our next letter comes from Zugbo. I hope I'm not uh, pronouncing that wrong. There was Zugbo, no pronunciation Zugbo. guide, so you get what you get, Zugbo. I am sorry. I hope that's correct, Zugbo. Okay, hi, podcast masters. I was listening to your episode with Tom Chick and his point about MOBAs being a concession to RTS players who couldn't handle both macro and micro was immediately familiar. I also only like half of the classic RTS formula, but in my case, it's the opposite half. I don't enjoy telling my soldiers exactly where to stand and who to shoot, but I love making sure there's twice as many of them as there are of the opponent. The only efforts I've seen that try to service this other half of the RTS are Offworld Trading Company and maybe Archon Mode in StarCraft 2 if you have a friend who loves Micro. My question to you, do you know of any other macro-focused games that try to avoid or streamline the micro side of the equation? This question kind of points, I think, to one of the big problems with, um, with RTS games in general, which is that, by and large, that is a genre that more and more focused on the micro and more yeah. on that ability to multitask and manage a lot of details all at once uh, and putting that intention with uh, sort of some more simple uh, macro uh, layers where, where you're collecting resources and, and spending them. I think uh, the, the, the game I would point to the most would probably be an older game called uh, Kohan, Okay. Uh, which uh, Kohan, Immortal Sovereigns, Kohan, Araman's Gift, which was a really interesting RTS from TimeGate Studios uh, where you couldn't even command individual soldiers. What you had were armies uh, that you could sort of set them into different stances. And so at most, the, the most you could ever control uh, out on the battlefield was, was basically nine units, and they were nine... Uh, there were nine independent armies that you could sort of fit units into slots on those armies, but you could not micromanage them. All you could do was tell them where they were going, how they were going to get there, and what formation they'd take when they started fighting there. And it is one of the most brilliant RTS games ever made, and a complete evolutionary dead end, because nobody, nobody ever followed up on this. Hmm. And part of it was because... TimeGate Studios were nobodies. Nobody knew who they were. Uh, what the hell is a Kohan? Uh, and so I think, you know, in, in sort of a critical phase of, of RTS history, uh, the only people who were really relevant um, were like Westwood uh, making increasingly shoddy uh, Command and Conquers. 
Sure. <laughs> and uh, then you had Blizzard. And at that and it was kind of just them until maybe Relic showed up with uh, Dawn of War and Company of Heroes, which were very micro focused. But this entire other idea of just cutting out a lot of the micro is something that largely nobody uh, nobody else picked up on. Like, I'm, like I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, like, who else really did anything like this? Maybe like maybe Rise of Nations because uh, that was really more of a real time Civ type game than anything else, but. The, the 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 number of games that focus on that level that that operate on that level very very small and i think that's one reason rtss are in trouble rise of nations by the way is basically the only uh strategy game i've really played in my oh life, god we i i've been so, so i've been dying to get back into it uh we should <laughs> totally play it soon because it is it is so good it's pretty great and it was just sort of the one and only sort of you know, game of its type that I had a good friend in college who was just like, you need to play it. We're playing well, it. And we would play, you know, all night. And it was. And I, I don't think that's an accident, right? Because, yeah. like, I, because I, I think there are a lot of people like you and, and, and like me who would like that genre a lot more if it wasn't all, like, aimed at people who are a lot better at sort of spinning a ton of plates all at once. And that's the yeah. only form of challenger or mastery uh, that's relevant in, in RTS games. And I, I suspect, like, a lot of people would enjoy that format a little more if it weren't finding so many ways to point out uh, that the game is sort of beyond your control. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so our next email comes from TC. In last week's discussion, was there an unspoken premise along the lines of, we must play all games? For someone in the games industry or a critic or a dedicated hobbyist, I can see a need or want to consume all games. <laughs> But how hard would a game-playing civilian push against a taxing game after concluding, I am not enjoying this? And subject matter has to count for something, too. Uh, if my one real solid love in life is maze puzzles and slow environmental exploration, I'll invest more in learning the skills of The Witness than I would in XCOM 2, regardless of each game's significance to the meta level of the gaming landscape. <laughs> Yes, I think that that probably was sort of the premise, but only really by default in that uh, the three of us work in, you know, game criticism and and are, you know, somewhat part of, of covering the industry, basically. So it's part of our job description to play a lot of different kinds of games and be conversant with different kinds of games and, you know, sort of what's uh, what's happening and what's new and what's fresh at the time. So I think that is part of it, but that is a, a very worthwhile question, and uh, yeah, certainly something that I think in the real world, most people don't have the patience, time, or money to want to play all kinds of games. Yeah, and I mean, that also makes sort of the um, the critics' lens a little distorting, because I think a lot of critics tend to be actually a little inv less invested in the game than uh, than a lot of people who, who the game is sort of meant for uh, yeah. necessarily would be. Uh, so like, for instance, if I get tired of space four X's, well, there's a lot of people who really enjoy those and, uh, you know, absolutely kind of, they're buying what that game is selling and I'm going to have a very different response. Uh, but to that, to that sense of pressure that you have to sort of play everything. Yeah. I think that in, in this line of work, that is something that you, that's very easy to sort of put on yourself. I also, I, I, I also tend to think there is some value in, in sort of, 
being sort of a, a at least trying to be a gaming polymath right yeah uh, like there's definitely like types of games I, I return to more often than than others but uh i guess to to the point of that earlier email about sort of stretching and and, and trying to learn new things uh i i also really enjoy just sort of tackling games that ordinarily i wouldn't be into uh that much which is why like you know for the last couple of years the games i play when i have some real spare time tend to be rpgs because uh, nice. i never enjoyed that genre at all when it was like defined by games like ultima and such yeah uh, but i i sort of started trying to creep up on it from behind uh via things like mass effect and uh the witcher so yeah i mean i i think definitely that that exerts a little a little pressure on us uh but i'm not i'm not sure in our case that's that's necessarily a bad thing yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I, it's not uh, certainly not a negative that it is part of the job and uh, it makes us better critics, I think, personally. And seems like you do as well, so we're in agreement. All right, the next letter comes from Byron. Hey, Danielle and Rob. Loving the new podcast so far. I'm working on my games art portfolio, and you guys are perfect to listen to while modeling and texturing. With the game Stardew Valley coming out in a couple of weeks, it's gotten me pretty nostalgic for the Harvest Moon series, which I've recently gone back to play, specifically Back to Nature. Even slow-paced puzzlers like The Witness and The Talos Principle never got me into this really pleasant, relaxed gaming space. I know you've spoken about games to play when indulging uh, in being down or sad, but do either of you have a go-to chillax games? Another one that springs to my mind is that game company's Flow. Byron. Oh my goodness. Um, Gravity Ghost is a game I definitely go back to when I just sort of need to chill. Uh, there, there's something very pleasingly sort of tactile about that game, you know, sort of, it's a very simple sort of physics uh, puzzle game, but you can just kind of float around the galaxy and there's very peaceful music. It's very happy. I really enjoy sort of going back to that. And another game called Eidolone, I think I pronounced that correctly, which is actually a game I've talked about a bit in the past. Um, maybe my second favorite game of 2014 it was a very, very chill, sort of relaxing survival exploration game. But the survival elements really are not too taxing. Uh, you really just kind of have to make sure you have enough food and you don't, you know, die from anything. Um, but it's not, not that difficult to not die. Uh, mostly you're just exploring this big, beautiful, weird world and sort of getting bits of story and just sort of being in the world. Um, those are two really good go-tos and uh, Rob, I'll let you go and I'll probably think of another because I, I love going to games to relax for sure. Uh, I think for me, it tends to be games that are Sims on, on some level. Uh, so I tend to find like games that really lend themselves to, to sort of chilling out uh, like experiences. Th they tend to bore me. And at that point, I would, I would sort of rather just like sit in a dark room or, or something. Uh, sure. But what I love is like firing up a game like uh, the free flight mode in Rise of Flight. Uh, for instance, which is a World War One uh, air combat sim, but you don't have to fight anyone. Uh, you can just take a little biplane up uh, in this really like gorgeous, uh, realistic um, flight sim, and it feel like I mean, my God, if you're playing with like a track IR like head tracker, yeah. I mean, it feels like you are freaking flying. It's unbelievable how cool that feels. And it's a little biplane. So, like, the entire game, there's nothing separating you from this feeling of flight. Uh, and, and so it becomes this hyper, uh, stimulating, like, experience of you are, you are out there, like, soaring through the freaking sky. And I love that. Um, 
there's a fine line between chilling and being bored a little bit, and I find Elite <laughs> can really scratch that itch. Sure. Uh, just sort of making making your cargo runs, uh, hanging out in Elite uh, can be a lot of fun. And then, um, you know, just just sort of, you know, playing a racing game and uh, a racing sim and just sort yes. of driving uh, driving fast laps uh, and, and trying, you know, not, not pushing myself too hard, trying to keep all four wheels on the road, <laughs> not, not wanting to lose it or get frustrated, but just that feeling of, you know, here we go around the course again and a little bit faster now, a little bit. Okay. That is so satisfying. I just, oh, that is like, that is like a bubble bath. Yes. I, uh, that goes for me as well. I know if I talked about this before studying while playing Forza, but yeah, Forza is, is perfect for that. And my other, I guess, go to for chilling out or just really anytime I, I have gone through phases of drop seven addiction that are just sort of ridiculous, but drop seven, I'm always down for a, a round of, or 27 of drop seven. That game just hits me on every level, every puzzle, you know, loving level and, it's it's sort of a thing where you know, I've never been good at math, so anything that involves numbers and just sort of like intuiting numbers as opposed to sort of uh, actually thinking too hard uh, always makes me feel happy. It makes me feel a little bit smarter and good about my life. So that one's another good chill game for me. Awesome. So, Rob, I think now it's time for us to talk about our our endorsements, our, our weekend projects, our, our things we've been reading, watching, listening, uh, listening to, enjoying. I am, I am totally going to stab you in the back here and oh, say no. you need to go first. Because uh, <laughs> I need to ponder a little bit. Like, Sherlock Holmes is my, is my jam right now, so I need to think about what was the other thing that I've been into lately. Okay, well, that's totally fine. I have a kind of a an offbeat... Uh, recommendation this time around. Um, I have been doing this thing where I'm, I'm sort of just like watching documentaries on Netflix as I work on my game or work on, you know, whatever else. And I found one that really, you know, I, I, I really felt touched by. And I, I wouldn't say this was the greatest made documentary ever. It's perfectly well made, but it was more the subject matter that sort of took me, you know, took, I took it right to heart. And it's a movie called Tyke Elephant Outlaw. Uh, which was about a 1994 incident in uh, Honolulu, I believe, where an elephant, a circus elephant, uh, went rogue, killed one of the people in the circus, and then, you know, sort of escaped, ran down the road, and had to be shot in front of all these people. And it really is just sort of a documentary about uh, circuses that abuse their uh, their animals and and don't treat their employees very well, and 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 you know, just generally about animal abuse. Uh, as a topic, and it was sad and touching, and you know, there's there's sort of the the good-hearted uh, feeling to this documentary because it's a very classic, you know, here's a problem and here's how we solve it kind of documentary. Yeah. Uh, but you're sort of showing this really beautiful elephant sanctuary elsewhere, where a lot of sort of like ex-circus elephants are, are are brought to to live in peace and harmony and. You know, I'm I'm kind of an animal lover. I've always been an animal lover, even though I this is my first pet in my life. I, I just got a couple of months ago, uh, so maybe even now, now that I am a pet owner, I feel even more strongly about these things. But man, animal abuse is terrible and terrifying and a horrible thing. And if, if you have a tender little heart like me and love elephants and think they are smart, strong, beautiful creatures, you might. Uh, you might get, you know, have an impassioned feeling watching Tyke Elephant Outlaw. And Tyke, by the way, 
is the name of the elephant in question. It wasn't like Did she they was killed? small or anything. <laughs> right, but that's the elephant they killed. Yes, that's the oh, elephant. Man, I'm, that, not, that, I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure. I'm I'm capable of watching that. I find I really like elephants uh, yes. and find them like they can be eerily uh, like human yes uh, they're like, very sensitive they, they, like, and smart there's, there's a lot of like there's, there's a lot of things that just seem like to, to hint at uh an incredible like degree of of, of like self-awareness and yes. like inner life with with elephants in particular yes. uh, across a, a lot of like the more actually studies are, are done on like animal behavior it seems like actually mammals in general are, are there's a lot more going on than we tend to think yes uh, which has some Troubling implications, perhaps, uh, but <laughs> sure. yeah, elephants in particular. Like, oh, I I do not like stories about elephants being mistreated. That is not cool. I yeah. I, I have trouble with that. Yes. Uh, anyway, okay, I figured out what I want to talk about because okay. I will never ever be moved to bring this up again because uh, <laughs> it is a it is a little casual game called Splendor. Oh, it's a little board game where <laughs> you and a couple other people uh, basically like. It's really abstract. There's a theme, but it's really just about collecting gems. It is about collecting. Uh, you can you can pick gems from a pool, uh, and then you can spend them to buy like gem production centers. And so you can like cr- get a place that allows you to buy ru- like generates rubies. Uh, another place that gener- gem- generates like emeralds, and you buy new cards. These new these these location cards you can buy them uh, with gems, of course. And so you <laughs> you know you sort of you control the means of production, and you can get more more uh, advanced cards and pr- that give you prestige points. And it's this it's it's a weirdly satisfying game. Uh, it's very it's a lot of fun to play with with a few other people uh you can you get through games very quickly uh it's not like a lot of euro games where i i tend to run into a problem with them where it feels like they are entirely uh like math problems yeah. and about just sort of like figuring out a system and, and working it uh this this is one of those things where it's very easy to sort of um no matter, even if you're playing badly, you still feel like you're making progress, and at the end, you discover someone else won or something like that. But hey, in the meantime, like you got a lot of pretty gems and pretty <laughs> cards, and you're doing all right. Uh, and and so it's it, it, it's just been this really satisfying um, sort of casual party game uh, that I've been playing a lot of uh, this week, and you know it's it's I, I, I tend to find there's a lot of great two player games. There are very few like three, four-player games that I don't find myself getting a little sick of after a while. Sure. I've played a lot of Splendor uh, in the past few months, and I'm I'm still really enjoying it and sort of figuring out new strategies for it. So uh, it, it's not a game that would ever come up in the context of, like, my strategy game podcast <laughs> or anywhere else. It's, a, it's an odd, light little thing, but damn if I don't love it. Yeah, sometimes those things are the best. You know, the palate cleansers and the, the light little things that are just... You know, maybe you didn't have the highest expectations from them, but they're great. And that's that's wonderful. That's lovely. So with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Folks, if you are enjoying our podcast, and we sure hope you do, please, please, please do tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell tell folks in your life that you think might enjoy the podcast. Tell them to, you know, give us a shot. Give us a listen. And uh, please do rate us on iTunes because it helps us so, so much, and we, we really, really appreciate it. 
Uh, you can always learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. And we really appreciate that as well. We get such a just high caliber of, of letters from you folks, and it is awesome. And it always gives us, makes our jobs easier to find, you know, really interesting, good stuff to read. So we really appreciate that. So to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Cool. Yay.